Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson, the talk show that makes the connections between research, policies, and practitioners that are too often missing from the American education system. Now, here's your host, Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Good day, listeners. Welcome to Educate with Dr. Jefferson. I am your host, Jonathan Jefferson. You can learn more about me at my show page on TalkZone.com. Today, we are going to discuss improving schools. For more than a year, we have discussed almost every issue affecting schools. Researchers, authors, professors, specialists, and practitioners have joined us to share insights. Scholar-athletes gave us the secrets to their success, while science and robotics students wowed us with their projects. A school district nurse supervisor updated us on the flu and Ebola, and a highly decorated police chief updated us on the latest efforts regarding school security. The links and MP3s to all of the past Educate episodes are available at my show page on TalkZone.com. My first guest this evening is Dr. Deborah D. Brennan. Deborah D. Brennan received a Doctorate of Education degree in special education, teaching gifted and talented from the University of Northern Colorado, where she also received two master's degrees, one in educational leadership and one in gifted and talented education. She is past president of the Colorado Association for Gifted and Talented. She has over 20 years teaching experience and over 10 as a school administrator, working in both middle and high school. Her most recent assignment was opening a Title I middle school in Central Texas. This school had over 850 students with an ethnic diversity that matches Central Texas. Deborah, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson. It's nice to speak with you this afternoon. Hey, I, I appreciate having you on. So, Deborah, let's start with um, after you realized so many students had failed previous state tests, what were some of the first steps you took in turning things around? Well, you know, we had to start with our, our Tier 1 instruction. We had all new staff. Of course, this was a new school, and the staff had different backgrounds and experience levels. Um, one of the other things that complicated our work in Tier 1 is there were several initiatives and grants that, that really complicated the work. We had a grant for the strategic instruction model. We had an aspire after-school federal grant. We had Title I requirements, a uh, race to the top grant that had a model for classroom observations of our teachers. And we were also designated as an international baccalaureate middle school program campus. Wow. So my job... Yeah, it was it was pretty overwhelming, and then to have so many students struggling, my job really became to how do I fit all of those different requirements and mandates together for my staff, so we actually had a cohesive um, in curriculum instruction and assessment model that would support these teachers. Um, now, we had to start on tier one, of course. Mm -hmm. Now, all of these grants were. Were they applied for and received in order to have funding for the school, or was it a coincidence that the new school started with all of these grants? I think it was more of a coincidence uh, that it started. The Aspire came because of our Title I status, and the Title I, of course, came because of our demographics. But the others were ones that were um, given to us by the district. So we had several that were kind of competing in International Baccalaureate has a whole format for how they want things done, and so did the strategic instruction model grant. 
and they were not as aligned as they needed to be to for our teachers to be able to navigate them. Mm. What motivated the establishment of this new school? Um, we uh, many of our middle schools were overcrowded, and so when they drew the boundaries to this school, it actually drew from almost every middle school in the district. Um, and so it was an old building, but we did bring uh, students together from quite a few different middle schools, and then our staff was all new. So I had to focus on these academics, and we took a lot of the work of Marzano and Hattie, Robin Jackson and McTeague, and I studied a lot of those through my gifted education, so trying to put those into a way that teachers could navigate them and, and then concentrate on trying to support our struggling students uh, was um, really the focus that first year. Uh, we started with backwards design, uh, trying to link our learning objectives directly to our content standards. My job became to give the teachers time to plan, and I, well, I gave them subs for a day. I was able to use some of my grant funds so that they could take subs once in a while to plan all day. I bought them resources for their instruction, leveled readers, science equipment uh, for hands-on kind of things. So we really tried to build that tier one instruction to be solid for our kids. Now, were you instrumental in choosing your staff in this new building? Uh, yes, I had the um, fortune to, to be able to hire most of the new staff for this building. And one of the things um, that I was able to do is to select people that really believed in student learning. Uh, we had a question on our uh, interview that asked them about their attitude toward late work and their attitude toward zeros. We really wanted to hire people that would focus more on the learning of the student and wouldn't um, blame students or accept excuses uh, for students not learning the material that we needed to. We knew we needed to close the gap um, in student learning if we were ever going to break that correlation that we had uh, right now with low achievement and high poverty. Okay. Now, I'm curious, what are the, in the district you worked, what are the tenure, uh, what is the tenure policy? Some places it's three years, some places if you work some, if you earn tenure somewhere else, then it's only two years. I mean, what, how much do teachers have to work in order to earn tenure in, uh, your district? Um, they have to be proficient on their, um, school evaluation. Um, the instrument that we use for evaluating teachers every year that has two observations um, involved in a self-reflection, their scores have to be proficient for three years in order to become um, not a probationary contract to have a professional contract. So there, Texas is not a um, union state, so we have a little more freedom as far as how teachers are, are disciplined or let go. Okay. Now, do you think this gave you an, an advantage? You had a you had a, a whole group of motivated teachers who were willing to go the extra mile, um, not only because they have a passion for teaching, hopefully, but also because they are they're they're new and they want to establish themselves in a the district. So that just seems like a very uh, beneficial setup that you had there. Yes, we did have some teachers that when they reallocated the children, um, different buildings. Um, had to cut their staff, 
And so rather than having those teachers be fired, many of them were transferred to other buildings. And okay. so um, I did have some staff that just came to me. There were advantages to having these people coming together, as you said, uh, young, eager, and, and really uh, believing that all students can learn. And it was about the learning. But there was a disadvantage in that they didn't know each other. We didn't have any. We had to build some kind of structured system for curriculum, instruction, and assessment that we could all follow and, and have a common language around our pedagogy. And so we spent the first two years kind of getting to know each other and then mm-hmm. some stability in the staff those first two years because many people came wide-eyed um, into the building with good intentions. But it's, uh, working in a poverty school is, is very hard work, as you may know. So mm-hmm. many people would... Um, there was a number of staff who just said, this is, this is really hard. This is a lot of work. Hmm. So, now, uh, s- go ahead. Uh, you stated in an article that at the end of year two, you made some shifts in your own leadership. What were some of the things you did differently at that point? Well, I had spent the first two years really working on that academic side of the whole school culture. Um, I used everything that I had learned to bring all the different initiatives together and really build a system of curriculum instruction and assessment. We looked a lot at the standards and teachers dug into those standards to make sure they were assessing at the rigor level of the standard, teaching at the rigor level of the standard, and we tried to set up a really structured system inquiry around data. But my focus was a lot on the academic side. And um, as we started to get some stability in the staff, I realized that I needed to shift over and become more focused on the social-emotional side, not just of the students and their development, but also of my staff. And so my role in the school had to change um, I did some reflection. I couldn't continue to lose staff. I needed to really become in tune with them. I needed to engage them in the school. I needed to inspire them in our work. I needed to empower them to be a part of the decision-making, and I needed to celebrate the successes that they were having. And so my role changed somewhat, um, my role, and then we tried to change some of what the staff were doing as well. Now, did you find yourself supported by the the central administration and the community? For example, was the um, the appearance of the building maintained? Was the um, were, were you supplied well? I mean, what what additional supports did you have that that made you made you successful? We we did have a number of grants. I mean, funds came with some of these initiatives, which was a blessing. There were training requirements, of course, with with several of the grants, the teachers had to go out and get training, but we also got resources um, for that. I spent a lot of time on the physical appearance of our building, and we had a great maintenance staff in the in the district that was very supportive of painting and doing landscaping. We had the United Way of our county come in and help with landscaping on an MLK day. Mm. 
we, we did the landscaping in the front. So we had great support from our community and our parents. Our PTA was someone involved, very small, because oftentimes in a, a Title I school, parents are busy working. They don't have time to come and, and come to PTA meetings. They're interested in their kids and they're supporting their kids, but they're, they're working to put food on the table. They don't have the time to come to the meetings to raise funds for the school. Okay. Now, with Texas being that it's bigger than most countries, but in central Texas, what was the um, the racial and ethnic breakdown uh, approximate in your school? Um, well, we really were a minority-majority school. By that meaning, um, our, our school was about 55% Hispanic. Okay. And the rest of the ethnic makeup was split between Anglos and African Americans. We had a okay. few of the other racial groups, but but really, you could count them on one hand. Okay, so and it social was a very diverse campus. Okay, and socioeconomically, were most of them from lower income or um, actually Title One grant funding uh, levels? Right. We had over sixty-five percent. Um, that were on free and reduced lunch. Okay. And okay. That's... There was about fourteen percent that were special education, and about the same amount that were our English language learners. Okay. And the reason I asked is because the mobility rate was almost eight percent. Okay. I ask because the majority of those who listen to this program, whether they listen live or listen afterwards, are educators. Um, and those are usually the type of things they want to know as far as, as you know, how much does it match the environment that they're in or what similarities can they draw? Um, Deborah, at this time, we're going to take a short break. But stay tuned. We'll be back with more right after this. Welcome back to Educate on Talk Zone. Here's Dr. Jonathan Jefferson. Welcome back. Welcome back. Welcome back to the show and our discussion with our guest, Dr. Deborah D. Brennan, regarding improving schools. If you'd like to join our conversation, the phone lines are open, 888-463-6748. That's 888-463-6748. We're taking your calls on Talk Zone. Uh, Deborah, when I read your article and this month's educational leadership, um, there are many things that you did in your school that I am a strong believer in and proponent of. Uh, so, um, with the, with the few minutes that we have left, that we have more than a few minutes, I would like to, uh, you know, touch on some of those, uh, amazing things that you did. Um, in your article, you stated that students were not allowed to fail. How did you, how did your staff accomplish this? Well, one of the things, I have rock star teachers, and so we did have policies and opinions on zeros and late work. Um, we had a system of data inquiry that teachers would disaggregate their data by peak, by our standards, and they would track student achievement by standards and actually give them a grade by standards. And so students knew their strengths and their weaknesses and learning wasn't done until students were proficient on the standards. My teachers believed that. So they would have tutorials by standards, and students would be invited to come in and learn those 
uh, tutorials for before and after school. We had a Saturday Academy in Science and Social Studies where teachers came in and invited the kids, and we structured those tutorials right around the standards. So it was very focused, and we believed in grading for hope. And I think students that have struggled in school, like many of our poverty students do, need to feel like there's a chance that they can pass so they don't shut down. And the way that the teachers disaggregated by standards and invited students in to learn and didn't grade until the students were at the proficiency level, I think had a lot to do with that um, not allowing them to fail because the students had some hope that they might actually be successful if they worked. It didn't have to be the first time they saw the material. They were given an opportunity to retake and redo. We didn't penalize for late work. And I think that, that really helped um, the students um, see, the, see that they would not fail. I think sometimes, too, that we set out this idea that we're going to have relationships with students and we, we want to build relationships, and then we put very punitive policies and structures in place in our school regarding grading and discipline. And so it undermines what we're trying to accomplish in building those relationships and trust that students um, will actually trust us to try in schools when they failed um, in the past. Yeah. In fact, you just touched on two of the areas that um, I was excited to read. Um, one, the fact that you allow students to retest um, um, and, and allow them to hand in work late because ultimately it's about mastery, not about what you can do at this moment. It's about allowing them to get to mastery. And it sounds like that's what you your teachers allow, allow Yes, one of the things that I told teachers over and over, it's about learning, not about grades. It was about learning. Absolutely. And another thing that you started to talk about was um, the relationships. Um, tell us about the Capturing Kids' Hearts. Um, tell us about that program and, and, and how you implemented that in your school. Well, our students, our teachers, I think all teachers, Get, get into teaching because they really care about students. But sometimes they don't know how to have those relationships with them. And Capturing Kids' Hearts was a three-day training that we had all our staff. And one of the things is broke down the barriers between the staff. They really started to see each other as humans with uh, frailties, etc. And it helped them work together once they knew each other uh, is more than just uh, the teacher down the hall. But it also built some systems into our school, a way that we could be intentional in building relationships with students and could hold each other accountable for what we were doing. We had social contracts in classes, um, which was how we agreed to treat each other, the teacher and the students treating the whole community, how they would treat each other. Uh, we had teachers in the halls, and teachers would remind each other to get in the halls and talk to the students, not in the halls to talk to each other, not in the halls to reprimand students or talk about missing work, but there just to say hello or you look nice today to build those positive relationships. We started trying to celebrate our students who were doing the right things as well and building that, that celebration of each other as faculty also in our into our I modeled this in our 
faculty meetings where we would start with sharing good things about each other, thanking each other for our work. I would stand at the door and greet my faculty coming in. Just that whole culture and climate of caring is what Capturing Kids Hearts gave us. And I think that's so excellent, the fact that it included the adults actually modeling the behavior that they want kids to see. The fact that you're greeting teachers and teachers are expected to greet each other and, and listen to each other. And I, it's just so important to model it. I've been in, in environments where it's preached, but the adults aren't expected to do it. <laughs> so they're expecting the kids to do what, the, what they're not modeling themselves. So I think that's such an important component of, of what you implemented. Well, and I agree with you, Dr. Jefferson, and I think it, it goes even beyond that. I see administrators tell teachers to build relationships and tell them to give formative feedback and tell them to be positive uh, with their students, and yet the administrators aren't modeling that and how they relate to their teachers. And I think that's one of the things I learned after leaving the school for two years and struggling is a lot of reflection on my part to say, this is what I want my teachers to do, then that's how I need to treat them. And I need to engage them and inspire them and support them and be positive with them and be available emotionally and physically for them um, in order to set the tone for the building. I, I, that's that's excellent. I, I've, I'm f- fully concur with you. And, and there, there are uh, administrators that I, I, I will share this with because um, – they too are preaching the right thing, and sometimes they just don't know. They're so in, involved with administrivia that they they forget that they need to spend that extra moment keeping their door open and and asking a teacher how they're doing, and just minor things like that that would improve the climate. I I agree. It's a it's a big job. Um, they have a lot of responsibilities, but um, it really is the people more than the tasks that are important. Absolutely. And, and in fact, I find myself because I know that being a district administrator, I can go weeks, you know, without even seeing a child if I chose to, because there's so much uh, that needs to be done. But I find I need to, to be reminded of why I'm in this line of work. And there's always a handful of kids who I, you know, you know, adopt um, and and follow through their years to make sure they graduate and you get and, I, and it's usually the most challenging kids and they they take so much appreciation for the fact that you took time you know to rescue them when they were you know lollygagging in the hallway to um, call home to find out why they're you know not in school and 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 when and when you see them walk across that stage it's just such a re, you know and graduate it's such a reminder of why we're in this business to begin with. Well, and I, I agree with you. I think where I really had my awakening was when I taught at a, a very large um, suburban high school and saw 19-year-old students who had the credits of a freshman and saw how discouraged they could be. And I knew we needed to do more at the middle school level especially and that these students weren't a big surprise. We could look back at their records from third grade and see who had had problems, who was struggling academically. And we set out that second and third year, that third and fourth year, excuse me, to start identifying those students and intervene with them early, not just academically, but social-emotionally, setting up mm-hmm. mentors, setting up uh, counselor groups, and even knowing which classes they had trouble in and trying to get in as an administrator to support that student, not to evaluate the teacher, but to just touch base with that student and 
try and support them in caving and doing what they needed in class. Absolutely. Uh, now tell us about your principal's advisory committee. Um, this was something I started um, this fourth year, was to choose students out of my sixth grade. I started there to um, meet with me um, once a month, and I wanted the students who were the natural leaders, the ones who the other students followed, not necessarily the the ones who behaved the best and were the straight A's, but I wanted the ones that had that were the informal leaders of the school. And I met with them and said, look, you're my representative now. What is it you need from the school? What would make you feel an ownership and that this was the best school in the district? And they had a list of things that they wanted, and I said, well, this is what the administration needs from you to get to class on time and to behave in class and to work hard in your classes. And we started having this discussion every week or every month about, and they would take it back then to their advisory uh, classes because we had two from each advisory class that were selected and talk to their friends about how to behave. And then I was out in the halls and would see my advisory kiddos and, and try and keep encouraging them to set the example for the rest to follow. Excellent. In fact, um, uh, it's, it's very powerful when you empower. <laughs> um, the impact that those children probably had on the building was, was probably infinitely greater than if they were left out of the process. Um, Deborah, unfortunately, we've already run out of time. Uh, oh, we have sp- yeah, yeah, it goes quick, doesn't it? <laughs> um, yes, it we have does. Been spe- Yes, we have been speaking with Dr. Deborah D. Brennan, former principal of PFC, Robert P. Hernandez Middle School in Round Rock, Texas. Deborah, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Dr. Jefferson. It was my pleasure. Same here. Stay tuned because our next guest will share strategies for putting research into practice. 